And as our children leave, let us bow together and pray. Truly, may we see what is ours to see. And may we be given the courage to do what is ours to do. You are always inviting, O God. And you are always speaking. Sometimes your word comes through a preacher, or through a text, or through an anthem, or through a song. But sometimes it comes in the stillness and quiet of a young person's heart. Or in the reflections of an older person. Or in the way that opens before us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word ever present in this world. Make us one now with all of your children everywhere as we pray the prayer that Jesus taught long ago for us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Indian activist Arundhati Roy says another world's not only possible, she's on her way. And when it's quiet, I can hear her breathing. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven has come near you. Do you hear it? Do you hear the similarity? They're talking about the same thing. This possibility, this invitation, what we might call in by church parlance, a calling to enter in, as Jesus said, to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said it's here. This sacred harmony that was intended for this world, that was begun in Eden, that got lost, it's still the intention and vision of God. Abundance, respect, wonder, generosity. A place and a time where everything and everyone belongs. From the brain surgeon all the way to the vulture who eats the carcass on the side of the road, everything has a role. Everything has a place. Another world is not only possible. She's on her way. And on a quiet day, I can still hear her breathing. This is the vision of God. Matthew reports that Jesus called those first disciples. And we know their names. Peter, Andrew, James, Sean, Philip, Thomas, Matthew, Bartholomew, James. We see the banner behind me, the call of the disciples. And we can hear it only in terms of history. This is what happened long ago. But this isn't a history lesson. This is about us. This is about calling us. Not just to be messengers of the love. Communicators of the vision. But to actually be 
the vision. To incarnate the dream that God has for this world. To love each other. To love the world. To love your neighbor. To love your enemy. To refuse to fall into despair. Which long ago John Claypool identified as a form of presumption. To, be, to, to despair is to be presumptuous. It, it says that God has already done. To refuse despair, to refuse anger, to refuse judging and name-calling and disrespecting even the most despicable, but rather to be vulnerable and generous with our lives. In other words, don't just bump our gums about this. But incarnate the vision of God in tangible ways. Not to show off, but because it's good and it's right and it makes the world harmonize in the way that it's supposed to. For me, this is exactly the message that was being echoed all across the land in city streets all across our country yesterday. They were diverse. There were protesters. There were cranks. There were kooks. But in and amidst all of it, you could hear people saying, another world's not only possible, she's on her way. And when I'm quiet, I can hear her breathing. That's the same message Jesus came for. And if it surprises you on a Sunday morning to hear a minister say that what transpired on Saturday in the streets is the same thing being spoken in the pulpit on Sunday, I would suggest to you it's because we're not looking at it right. Perhaps you, like me, are prone to freeze-dry the gospel, if you will. Shrink it down. Walter Brueggemann called it a truth greatly reduced. Much of American Christianity, he would say, is a truth greatly reduced. We took a phrase like the kingdom of heaven, and we said that means that if you believe in Jesus when you die, you get to go to heaven instead of hell. Really? That's all it means? We took the word repent. And we said, repent means to stop drinking and lusting and partying. And if you're poor, stop stealing. If you're poor. Jesus said, follow me. And we freeze-dried it. We reduced it to coming to church and learning how to be more judgmental. It's as if we freeze-dried God's vision and extracted all the life and the juice and the joy and the purpose out of it. And I think our work, Highland, as good Baptists, is to dunk that freeze-dried vision back into the living water and let it come to life again. Let it expand. Let it fill out. Let it blossom. The kingdom of heaven isn't just about what happens when we die. The kingdom of heaven is about God's intention, God's vision, God's dream for this world. And it's the only way the world will ever work. That's the kingdom of heaven. Repentance isn't just about stop doing this, stop doing that. Repentance is about turning. Turning from fear. Turning from division, turning from scarcity and violence, turning from ingratitude and turning toward harmony, abundance, peace, humility, sacredness, 
neighborliness. You may know that one of the largest religious groups emerging in our country today is a group that's been given the label the nuns. And they're not talking about the Catholic women of a religious order. They're talking about the people who answer the question, what's your religious preference with? None. None. And the vast majority of the nuns are those who have not been able to see beyond this reduced, pinched, freeze-dried gospel that they've been handed. And I understand that. And you do too. Highland, you're here because somehow you were able to move through the freeze-dried gospel to see its beauty, to see its wholeness. You walked into a deeper understanding of this gospel. You saw in it the oneness of creation, the value of each person, how life fits together. You're like the little kid in the grade school who's daydreaming, looking up at the world map, and all of a sudden realizes, oh, I can see how the different continents fit together, as if we were once one. You get it. By God's grace, it's not that you're smarter or better than others, but you've been given this gift, Highland. And I wonder if one of the works that God calls us to is to unshrink the gospel. Walter Brueggemann says, we are called to be poets against the prose of the world, the facts, the duties, the lists, the, the regulations. To unshrink the gospel is to prevent us from being to reduced to a world of brutality and that, that closes in on us. And so Dr. Brueggemann says this poetic speech, which is entrusted to and, and practiced by the church, is an act of relentless hope, hope that God is not done. It's an argument against the ideological closing of life that we so unwittingly embrace, he said. This freeze-dried gospel, this reduced, pinched vision of God is what Jesus Christ came into the world to liberate. To liberate. To set us free from it. Unfortunately, the church throughout time has continued to revert to the freeze-dried version. And I understand that. It's safer. It's easier. The other one might call for real change and a loss of privilege. But we also might find, we also might find that an unreduced gospel is what the world is looking for. It's what we pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. It's why people take to the streets to articulate a dream of a different world. And that's our language. That's who we are. Those are our people. Even if they don't name the name of Jesus, even if they say, I don't believe in Jesus, they're walking the way of Jesus, which means they're following Jesus. What if Highland Baptist Church 
Rather than assuming that the only resources that are at our disposal are the people who show up on Sunday and give money, what if we joined hands with all of our neighbors who want to, for example, improve reading scores in in an underperforming school in West Louisville? Why couldn't we join hands? Why can't we join hands with people who are standing up for the rights of the LGBTQ community? Why can't we create a youth ministry that's not just for our kids, but for every kid out there who doesn't have a faith community, who's lost, who needs people to instruct in the ways of love? What if Wednesday night suppers became not just us getting together, but the community coming together? Why? Because we need to learn. We need to grow. We've got work to do that is sacred and important work. So let's get together. Let's, let's offer classes that send us on that way. The truth is, we're already doing this. We just need to open our doors. This feels to me like perhaps our most important work. To build bridges with our neighbors. To connect their passion for another world with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know elections are very important. It matters who sits in the head seat. I have a feeling if John the Baptist and Jesus would have been given an option, they would have preferred that Herod not be the king over Israel. John lost his head. They cut his head off. They crucified Jesus. It makes a difference. But our most important work is to create a community chorus with voices as diverse as the birds in the air, and that includes your voice. If you're a child, if you're new, if you're aging, if you're one of those who has a hard time putting thoughts into words, we still need your voice because every voice matters in this chorus. Each voice has its own lilt, its own cadence, its own tone and timbre. Each voice has a history behind it that informs how that voice is sung and heard, and we need you. And God is calling. Can you hear it? Years ago, I read a short story called The Rabbi's Gift. The rabbi's gift. It's actually a story about a Catholic monastery years ago. It had once been a vital monastery out in the woods, set out with a big uh, campus of, of buildings and a chapel. But as the years had gone by, the monastery and the men in the order had begun to die off, and they'd begun to shrink. There were no new prospects for the order, and so they were down to five 80-year-old men who simply were wondering, what's our future? The monastery was set in woods, and in the woods there was a little hut where the rabbi from the synagogue in the city would come out and, and pray, and the monks could kind of sense when the rabbi was in the woods. They could feel it, the rabbi. He's in the woods. So one day as the, as the monks were talking about the future of their group and how they were dwindling and dying, they one said, Abbot, why don't you go? as our leader, and speak to the rabbi and see if he has any advice for us. 
So they take her on out. So the rabbi, in the woods, greeted his friend, the abbot. The two old men hugged together. He said, I've come to see if you have any advice for us. Our group is dwindling. Can you help us? Oh, said the rabbi, it's, it's the same in the city. People come to synagogue less. They come to the high and holy days less and less. We face the same troubles. So the two old men prayed together. They sang together. They read the Torah. Are you sure you have no advice for us, asked the abbot as they parted. No, I have no advice, except to say, the Messiah is one of you. The abbot returned to his friends. What what did the rabbi say? What, What advice did he give? Well, he had no advice for us. He did have a rather cryptic comment at the end. He said, the Messiah is one of us. One of us? One of us here? Well, if so, then surely it would be the abbot. He's been a fine leader. Or perhaps if not the abbot, maybe it's Thomas, who's a holy man, who's filled with God's light. I know it's not Eldred. He's always crotchety and gaseous and and, uh, is hard to be around. But when we have discussions, he always seems to get to the right conclusion. Well, I know it's not Philip. Philip's a nobody. He's such a wallflower. But Philip has that capacity to be there in that moment when you really need someone. Well, I know it's not me, God. It's, it can't be. It, could it be me? God, it couldn't be me, could it? In the weeks and months that followed, the months began continued to ponder the message of the rabbi. If there was any significance to the rabbi's words that the Messiah is one of us. And they began to treat each other with an extraordinary amount of respect on the off chance that that person was the Messiah. And in fact, they began to treat themselves differently and look at themselves differently and carry themselves differently on the chance that they themselves might be the Messiah. The monastery, as I said, was located in this woods, and the people would occasionally come from the city to have a a picnic or wander on the paths or even visit the dilapidated old chapel. And as they did, they slowly began to realize this aura of respect around these five old monks. It's like it radiated from them. It it permeated the atmosphere. There was something compelling and attractive that that brought the people back weekend after weekend. They began to visit with the monks to go to their prayer times. One of the young men from the village said, can I come out and pray with you on a regular basis? And soon began to ask the question, what does it take to become a monk? Could I be a monk? He joined and then another and then another. And within a few years, this declining monastery was again thriving. And thanks to the rabbi's gift, it was for the world a source of light and love. Another world's not only possible, it's already here. And when I'm quiet, 
I can hear it breathing. God, may we see what is ours to see. May we do what is ours to do. Invite us to this work of love as we give ourselves to you. Let's sing together. Thank you.